Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which we talk with our writers and the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by uh, Justin E.H. Smith, who is a professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Paris, though he is um, at Princeton for this semester. Uh, and also just a regular Liberties contributor. And we are not discussing any essay that he wrote for us. The two of us have a kind of mutual fascination with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this discussion is really just about um, Emerson's thought, the way that we both interpret it, um, the traditions we place it in, and what it has contributed um, to American philosophy and also to both of our understandings of... Um, life, God, and mysticism. <laughs> I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Justin. <laughs> I'm really excited conversation. How are you? How are you doing? Doing ver- very well. Thank you. So this podcast is about Emerson. And mm. I guess the catalyst for it was an email that you sent me like two <laughs> weeks ago. Well, it was a comment that you made uh, at dinner with Leon some some months ago, in fact, about yeah. Emerson that 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 stuck in my mind as I've been reading Emerson more recently. <laughs> what what made you turn to him? Oh, well, you know, I'm um, staying in the United States for about six months after a decade or so in France and over this past decade, I've become positively obsessed with uh, the evolution of distinctly American styles of thinking and, of course, also of expression. And obviously, Emerson is a key figure in the emergence of uh form of thought, we can call it philosophy if we want, though that's a problematic category for Emerson. We can get back to that. A form of philosophy that is distinctly American and that I really feel explains a lot about who we are (laughs) and how we got to be this way, Um, you know, on the... For us. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's for better or worse, I, I think. Right. I mean, I, I love I love Emerson. I think there are some uh, uh, kind of seeds in his uh, 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 intellectual style and in his project of um, of of characteristics of American thought that will become, uh, let's say, I don't want to use the word problematic, but <laughs> why not? Why not? I'll, I'll say I'll say it as it is. And you know, I I think I've been for years. I've been obsessed with Whitman, and uh-huh. okay. there's, there's there's an interesting Whitman Emerson relationship, of course. Yeah. Um, I think Whitman uh, draws out more fully both the kind of unhinged. Mm. Uh, ebullience that I love in Emerson, but also uh, maybe the, the, the grows further these seeds that I've, I've talked about in, 
you know, Whitman's um, in democratic vistas in Whitman, for example, his um, enthusiasm about our imminent invasion and occupation of Canada, for example, of, of at, you know, the, that we are destined to, um, to absorb this entire continent and the entire Pacific Ocean on the other side. And just, you know, this kind of, kind of like really drunk on this vision of imperialism to come, which I think is just, you know, so over the top in Whitman that um, it's hard to, it's hard to hate him for it. Um, but another thing they share, of course, is uh, this disdain. I don't want to say disdain, this wariness of European style erudition and book learning. Um, Whitman, again, says it more fully, draws it out more, so to speak, boldly um, when he says something to the effect of, you know, you need to uh, give those old Europeans the respect they're due, but then stand here in your own place today, right? And um, in Emerson, I think uh, it's more kind of a wariness of um, erudition for its own sake and uh, the kind of potential for moral corruption that curiosity carries with it, curiosity of the sort that might come from reading a ton of books. And that's more continuous with kind of ancient wisdom. You, you didn't, it didn't take an American to notice this, <laughs> but still, um, it's, uh, I think, uh, as I, as I put it before, a seed of something that will come out more prominently over the course of the 19th century. Um, but, you know, I, I was, I was talking to a friend here at Princeton about, um, about, uh, Emerson and, you know, both of us are lovers of Whitman. And one of the things he said, and I've been really mulling this over the past few days is that he could never really, uh, find in himself an affinity for Emerson because Emerson is just too damn self-content. He said, he's oh, too God. happy. Um, Whitman is so clearly um, kind of about to have a breakdown at any moment. <laughs> you don't, you don't think so. You, you disagree, huh? I totally disagree. I think that's something tragic about Emerson and I think it kind of undergirds everything he writes. There's something very sad about him. That's oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily, like, until my friend said this, I hadn't even considered it. I wasn't really reading him on a kind of sad to happy scale. <laughs> um, the, the, question, the question didn't come up for me, but, you know, uh, he definitely stands apart from more unhinged American Renaissance characters like Whitman or Melville, who really do seem constantly on the verge of a breakdown, <laughs> which is what I love about them. <laughs> constantly on the verge of a breakdown. So something interesting and really bizarre about Emerson um, that I can't forget now that I know it. Have you have you read Richardson's biography of Emerson? No, I haven't. No, no, no. Okay. I'm at I'm at this point with Emerson where um, you might not. I, no, yeah, I mean, uh, this often happens to me when I'm kind of in the in the giddy butterflies in the stomach phase of my engagement with an author. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to 
be absorbing facts about them. I just want to kind of uh, uh, let their work um, kind of uh, uh, maintain, uh, how should I put it? Uh, a rosy aura about them. I'll get to I'll get to the the biographies and so on later. <laughs> yeah, I get, I understand the impulse. I mean, it's a kind of purity or a kind of dignity mm. in the work, and I I understand mm. want to preserve it, like to, to like zealously to protect it. Um, mm. I I love Emerson. I love Emerson like maybe more than any other author, and I think. Uh-huh. For me, I think the reason I do is because he showed me a way to be spiritual that I could take mm. seriously, which I, like, I, I think yeah. that is the right word, spiritual, mm-hmm. but um, it's it doesn't sound weighty enough. Like yeah. his... Um, relationship with whatever the thing is that he keeps going god made mm-hmm. more sense to me than any example i'd been given up to the mm-hmm. point of reading him and interesting and reading reading emerson for me is the closest i get to prayer mm-hmm. wow okay pray, Justin? Um, Have you- do i pray um i think well this is fascinating let me let me, there's so much to latch on to here uh for the moment i'm i'm not sure i've ever yet really understood what prayer is um but i would very much like to know i there's an urgency to knowing to to to, to figuring this out for me mm-hmm. um but let me tell you recently over the past few weeks i've been i've had an evening ritual i read two books in alternation. One is the collected essays of Emerson and the other is Augustine's Confessions. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> two, you know, two major lacunae in my reading that I'm I'm filling in. Um, but one thing that's fascinating to me is that the two of these characters are in many ways very, very incompatible. Augustine is such a kind of so unforgiving <laughs> of yeah. so many things oh. um, and so dismissive of everyone he disagrees with um, that uh, I think he would consider Emerson simply heretical um, yeah. if um, if we were to revive him and show him Emerson's writings. Um, nonetheless, the very peculiar phenomenon I've been experiencing is that I keep getting the two confused. The next day, I'm thinking about them, and I don't know who said what. Um, and obviously, the, the the major point of difference between the two is Emerson seems on several occasions uh, to characterize Jesus Christ as nothing more than a particular great man, right? Yeah. Which is um, which is exactly the heresy. Uh, well, among other heresies that Augustine was confronting among his contemporaries, uh, I'm tempted to say that the Manichees uh, would have given such a characterization of Jesus Christ. They definitely wouldn't have said he was identical to God. Um, so uh, Augustine is in the process of overcoming the kind of uh, vision of 
the Christian faith that Emerson is celebrating. And nonetheless, I keep getting them confused, right? And um, for me, the question is why? What do they what do they share? And I suppose, and here's what I've been thinking about. Let me know if you uh, if this resonates with you. Yes. Um, Augustine has this, you know, kind of classic expression of a central commitment of a lot of Christian theology, which is that kind of you strip away all of the contingencies of our bodies uh, and our worldly uh, kind of paths. um, And it turns out that deep down, we're all essentially identical, right? Mm -hmm. We're all sinners, but we're all capable of salvation. And uh, what's so interesting to me in Emerson is that this idea also comes back again and again and again um, that, you know, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, in the in the in the primary essay we're talking about today, the oversoul, uh, which he refers to also as universal mind. In a sense, you strip away um, the 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 autobiography of your kind of going to and fro in the world uh, in this illusory flow of time. And then what you discover is indeed, as for Augustine, that we're all identical. But in Emerson, what I think is so interesting, and maybe you'll have, you'll have some ideas about this, is that this um, identity, like this metaphysical identity that he wants to a tribute to all of us mm-hmm. um, is also a kind of move um, in this distinctly American setting um, that you know renders identity also as equality, right? So it's yeah. um, it's it the, to say that we're all identical deep down is not just about the next life or about salvation. It's about um, it's about how to be a how to be a good American, which is to say, um, you know, embrace um, embrace democracy and egalitarianism, and that's so interesting to me in Emerson. But maybe I'm getting him wrong. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're not. I think you're well. Okay. Um, l- let me do something. Let me do something first before I respond to what you're saying because I want mm-hmm. it I want this to be intelligible to people who mm-hmm. are familiar with him. And also, um, there's something I want to say about about Emerson's writing that mm-hmm. I want, I, I want to read, I want to read from the Oversoul. Oh yeah. That's a good idea. Um, which is, I think this, this is the the section that best articulates what you were just describing. It goes on for, it's a little, it's a bit of a paragraph, but I think mm-hmm. it's worth it. So let me just go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on, uh, it's on like 390 of the library of America edition. Mm-hmm. Of um, Persons are supplementary to the primary teaching of the soul. In youth, we are mad for persons. Childhood and youth see mm. all the world in them. But the larger experience of man discovers the identical nature appearing through them all. Persons themselves acquaint us with the impersonal. In all conversation between two persons, tacit reference is made as to a third party to a common nature. That third party or common nature is not social. It is impersonal, is God. And mm. so where debate is earnest, and especially on high questions, the company become aware that the thought rises to an equal level in all bosoms, that all have a spiritual property in what was said, as well as the sayer. They all become wiser than they were. It arches over them like a temple. This unity of thought 
in which every heart beats with nobler sense of power and duty and thinks and acts with unusual solemnity. All are conscious of attaining to a higher self-possession. It shines for all. Yeah, I, I had actually highlighted that passage as well, or at least the first part is one that I wanted to read and discuss. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, I think something about Emerson that is difficult to convey without reading him is how essential the language is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, William James has an essay about Emerson, which is really good. Um, and I think that he describes it this really well. Do you mind if I read from that also? Just because I think oh, that- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I haven't read that. And oh, I think, good. well, the, the Jameses in the plural are another- a current obsession with mine as kind oh, of key, key players in the kind of consolidation of the American style of thinking. But maybe that will be another topic, a topic for another time. Yeah, let's do that one too. Um, all right. So he, he like gives a kind of brief, um, I think incomplete summary of like the content of Emerson's thought. And, mm. then, and, and then he says, this was the first half of Emerson, but only half, for his genius was insatiate for expression and his truth had to be clad in the right verbal garment. The form of the garment was so vital with Emerson that it is impossible to separate it from the matter. They form a chemical combination. Thoughts which would be trivially expressed other, otherwise are important through the nouns and verbs to which he married them. Mm-hmm. Style is the man. It has been said the man Emerson's mission culminated in his style. And if we must define him in one word, we have to call him artist. He was mm-hmm. an artist whose medium was verbal and who wrought in spiritual material. And the yeah. thing, the thing, which is so brilliant and like, you, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh yes, that's yeah. right. Of course. But um, Emerson, what, what Emerson wanted to be was a poet. Yeah. That was like the highest, that's what he was always striving for. And he, he never really felt like he succeeded. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's, it's like the most important question to ask about Emerson, you just kind mm-hmm. of have to like habituate yourself to this, which is mm-hmm. difficult to do. And I think maybe one of the things that makes it feel mystical mm-hmm. is not what does he mean, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, because I think he means different things. Yeah. Um, and he also does have like one of the key strains in Emerson that I find very difficult and that I kind of find baffling is I, I think he has this kind of intolerance, this mm-hmm. kind of very deep, um, misanthropic impulse. He, mm-hmm. he like, sometimes really doesn't like people mm. or it's he, just... do you, that's what I was surprised like when when your friend when you said that your friend said that yeah. he's so deeply optimistic, like there are, have you read Experience? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an excellent essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what my friend said is that he not that he's optimistic, but that he's self satisfied, which I I think is um, compatible with being a bit uh, uh, disdainful of others. Well, um, except in real life, he yeah. wasn't like in real life he wasn't like this at all. Right. And it's just. The essays, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually, I think the, the thing that like I came to realize reading about him mm-hmm. is that these tendencies that he's describing, so much of his essays are him describing a thing that he's trying to mitigate in himself. Uh-huh. Like, he's, like, yeah. he's describing this ideal that he's that he wishes he were. So he really wished that he needed people less, but he was deeply 
like he was obsessed with his friends. He couldn't mm-hmm. really live without them. And uh-huh. he wanted it to be the, like in experience, there's this really disturbing paragraph where he writes about the death of his son. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I'm not going to read because I have self-control, but it, it's like really just so <laughs> jarring. Um, yeah. And right, I- yeah mm. but that, that's not how he was i mean he actually like his first his first great love was his first wife and mm. she died very soon after their marriage and he went and visited her grave every single day for a year right. and then he dug her up opened wow. the coffin and like looked at her dead body and mm. like that forced him out of this kind of like obsession or reverie that he was in but like how much, see, how much time passed it was a year. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 I don't know what that what that means the body would have looked like. What do you think? Oh, uh, well in the, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox Church traditionally you're supposed to dig your your loved ones up after 7 years. Oh my and, god. Wow. And then, yeah, and then wash their bones. Um like That's beautiful. Oh my god. <laughs> Beautiful is not the word that I <laughs> ever use for it. But I think so. Yeah, that's I, I, yeah. I just um, um, like I showed yeah, my hand. But there. one year, one year would probably be pretty, pretty gruesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyhow, yeah. <laughs> um, what was I going to say about that? Yeah, a few, a few comments. Um, 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 again, I, I don't know much about. Um, uh, Emerson's uh, personality and life outside of what he writes. I, I mean, I know him the way he was, he yeah. intended to be seen by his readers, right? right. Um, which is, uh, which is a, an important perspective among others on, Absolutely. on, on this person. Um, but one thing that strikes me is indeed that it all comes down to style and that this is important because often the ideas by themselves are commonplaces. Right. Um, they are ideas that, and like for example, the you know that that you shouldn't puff yourself up with with uh, with book learning, right? Right. Uh, we find this in Augustine too. We find it in 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 many authors uh, uh, throughout the ages. Um, yeah. His relationship to German idealism and to German romanticism, I think, is also very interesting. Uh, One would be tempted to call it derivative, Mm -hmm. but if one were to call it derivative, that would be trying to assess him uh, in terms of the originality of his ideas, which would, by William James's lights, be a, a, a misunderstanding of the value of Emerson, right? To me, What's what's so interesting about Emerson is he takes tropes or derivative ideas and he finds the most compelling way to express them. And he goes back over these same ideas over and over again, looking for more compelling ways to express them. And that is indeed his art. Right. That's um, that. And and it's it's incredible to me that um, that. Well, in the history of American philosophy, um, we have at its inception um, someone who is primarily a creative writer, right? Right. Um, 
and and who sees uh, the necessity of um, cultivating style um, for the expression of ideas. And I won't go on about what happened to American philosophy after that, um, <laughs> but um, suffice it to say that Emerson looks like a totally different species of creature um, from uh, uh, what we, what's familiar to us in 20th century philosophy. So in a way, it's very interesting to think like, you know, the, the, the philosophy building at Harvard is called Emerson Hall. Um, and at least originally, I suppose it, it housed both the, um, philosophy and the newly founded under William James psychology departments. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, as of the late 19th century, there was still some interest in preserving this, um, this, this uh, uh, very, very different style of thought as part of the kind of part of the, the, the recipe of American philosophy. And now it's just totally lost, right? But I think if it's lost to academic philosophy, on the other hand, I think it continues, as I've already suggested, to um, uh, kind of have uh, impact or to make itself felt in the way Americans more generally think about things. Well, I think that he got, you know... All great writers sort of get reduced to one idea. Mm -hmm. The thing that he, you know, the thing that he gets reduced to is self-reliance, um, or you know, kind of independence, and that is kind of thought of as essentially American. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't think that that's like if you read him, yeah. <laughs> that's not the that's not like the yeah that's not what yeah. we mean by American self-reliance. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I, I I wasn't thinking so much of self-reliance, though indeed, I guess that pedigree is important to think about. Um, and obviously that's the part that we know also through Emerson's connect connections to Thoreau. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah. this, yeah, this is an important part of the the what I have in mind when I'm talking about distinctly American thought. And I, I experience this all the time when I'm trying to explain to European colleagues why uh, Montana militias are so unhinged and don't understand uh, the benefits of living in a, 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 a highly developed social welfare state. And I'm like, well, because America has a different history. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a different, a different trajectory. Um, and, uh, and, and it is important to appreciate what our early thinkers were articulating as kind of spokespeople for this, this history um, in, in the course of unfolding. Um, but also, I think what I had in mind was um, precisely what you've highlighted, which is um, this uh, uh, move, and of course, this isn't all that we find in the history of the United States, because we also find a lot of fundamentalism, but this move to a kind of um, uh, thoughtful spirituality mm -hmm. that also disdains um, um, uh, positive dogmas, right? Um, yeah. I, th I think this is, um, this is uh, something that comes back again and again 
Um, and, you know, indeed, you might even want to say that there's something almost proto new agey about Emerson. Um, and I don't want to, you know, that's not an insult when I say it. I think this is an important part of our, our history. Um, but um, 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 it's, it's, it's definitely there. I mean, you know, he's he, one of his favorite uh, 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 old world inspirations is Emanuel Swedenborg. Oh right? my God. Um, yeah, he comes so fascinating to me. I mean, I was actually recently, I was surprised to see that, um, that William James Sr., um, James, the, the father of the James siblings, um, was himself, you know, I knew he was a, some kind of minor philosopher um, uh, himself, but he was also an avid Swedenborgian. Yeah. Um, Can you just and, say who Emanuel Swedenborg was so that? Yeah, sure. Emanuel Swedenborg was a Swedish philosopher, theologian, mystic, um, who, uh, whom I've always known mostly as the, um, target of Kant's polemic called dreams of a spirit seer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the spirit seer is Swedenborg. So uh, uh, Swedenborg is active in the mid 18th century, contemporary of Kant. Um, and Kant takes him as the ultimate irresponsible uh, 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 enthusiast, visionary, who, you know, uh, yeah. makes claims that that can't be uh can't be uh, justified. Uh, and, um, you know, wouldn't it be fun to be like Swedenborg? Kant seems to think, unfortunately, we have a duty to stay within the bounds of reason. And, there are uh, rules. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what my favorite uh, uh, Swedenborgian treatise describes um, his uh, successive um, journeys to Jupiter and Saturn. Um, yeah where he, um, he spent time among the inhabitants and learned their, their ways and their wisdom. It's great stuff. And so there's also, uh, this is also worth pointing out, there's also a Swedenborgian church. Um, and, and I gather it's larger in the United States than anywhere else. Um, and, no. no, I mean, this is a proper Christian denomination. I think, I think you know, uh, mainline Protestants would probably, I don't know, roll their eyes, but then also say, yeah, these are Christians too, right? I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not, it's not that out there. Um, mm -hmm. But in any case, I have been stunned to see recent, recently with William James Sr. and with Emerson, um, and also in uh, Henry James's novel, The Bostonians. I mean, there are other places where this keeps coming up again and again, how important Swedenborg was in the 19th, in 19th century America. This guy was... up in the Bostonians. What's that? Where does he come up in the Bostonian? Oh, I mean, just in passing. I mean, you know, he, the among the the f flavors of um, uh, Boston Brahmin oh, okay. um, upper class uh, uh, kind of among the touchstones of, mm -hmm. of 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 the Bostonians, you will find them mentioning Swedenborg alongside alongside mesmerism and you know. Uh, seances and another and new thing that they do up yeah. there in Boston. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so anyhow, I, I, I think that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really important, um, uh, piece of the puzzle that, that we, that would have to be, um, uh, taken into consideration but yeah i mean and it's also just a wonderful a wonderful example you know uh swedenborg is someone who is just considered beyond the pale today nobody in the context of academic philosophy is allowed to read him (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting because there is stuff in emerson that i mean the content of it feels almost kantian like Mm -hmm experience feels Kantian. I think I wrote Kant like several times in the margins mm-hmm. because, you know, he's talking about how you can never really know anything and mm-hmm. you get the, he, like you can get very, very close to an idea, but you never really touch the idea and yeah. you can't, you can't be sure that anything else exists outside of you, that kind of thing. And yeah. like the, the, the thing he's doing two very different things mm-hmm. in terms of like, I do think that the ideas are more complicated than just kind of run of the mill. I think that if you like, if you try, if you try very hard to kind of map out exactly what it is that he's saying, like if you cut out all of the fat and just try and understand, well, what does he mean by a soul or what does he Mm -hmm. mean by truth? Um, Like, I I think it it is a little bit more developed than just rudimentary, but the other thing that he's doing is like teaching you how to achieve a certain kind of excitation. Yeah. And that's, those are just two such different things, except that he really does seem to think that like the intellect is the way to, like that is the highest kind of experience, which is confusing. Like I think one of the fundamental ideas in Emerson is like, you have to go do things. You have to like make Mm. yourself, um, you have to put yourself in in experiences. You have to like test yourself um, by living and by feeling mm. what it is to live. Um, yeah. Like a, a kind of thrownness, which is not a word yeah. that humor uses, but like that's kind yeah. of the, the, the sensation. But also yeah. like he doesn't seem to think, at least from the from from what he what he writes, he doesn't seem to think that you can do that with other people. Like mm. people are a hindrance to that kind of that 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 um that level of experience yeah and i don't understand what one can mean by experience if they don't mm. with other people like interesting yeah you know um, yeah you've said two things that that actually really resonate with me and that kind of invite me to to mention names i might not otherwise have mentioned um one is uh the, the some of the work john cag k a a g has done on 19th century American philosophy. I don't know if you've seen his his work. Um, and he's been keen on even more obscure tendencies like um, the St. Louis Hegelians. Oh, um, and uh, uh, the, the, the common uh, idea that runs throughout all 19th century philosophy, in his view, is that, that we can't sit on our butts on this continent, right? We have got to um, learn how to, you know, forge metal and, you know, yeah. uh, 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 things like that. Huh? Um, and so we need philosophy that is um, suited to 
this continent, as people would say in various ways over and over again. Um, and so a lot of a lot of thinkers, there's this one really curious German immigrant um, in Missouri. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, He was one of the St. Louis Hegelians and he lived in some shack out in the country in Missouri and he (laughs) kept a diary and he wrote at one point, well, I set myself down this morning to read uh, uh, Spinoza's Ethics um, when I heard a rumbling outside my cabin and I realized it was a herd of buffalo. So I ran out and I I shot a couple. (laughs) this is just such a beautiful, a beautiful image of like, you know, the contrast. Reading Spinoza, hunting, yeah. you got to make a choice, right? So, um, man, what is, what is his name? I, it'll come to me before we're done with this conversation. Um, but uh, 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 in Emerson, I don't necessarily see that. Um, he seems, he, at least not to that degree, he seems to, um, he, see, he values meditation, right? He really seems to think that there is something noble and worthwhile about sitting and contemplating or uh, simply and uh, uh, non-teleologically strolling, right? And reminding... I think he does, and sometimes I really think he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, he can he can certainly contradict himself, uh, uh, or you know, say one thing at one moment and another at another moment. But one thing that has struck me is, um, you know, his his, and of course, romanticism is a very nebulous term, and mm-hmm. we should always hesitate to use it. But when he's talking about um, the um the cognitive and emotional benefits of walking down forest paths um mm-hmm. it's hard not to put this um in comparison with uh, a number of german romantic contemporaries of his now here i wasn't going to mention this necessarily but you mentioned thrownness mm-hmm. um which is, of course, a term that we associate mostly with with uh, Heidegger, yeah. and um, I would say, if anything is um, really kind of revolutionary in um, Emerson, it's that he seems to, and this is my interpretation, especially of the Oversoul, uh-huh. he seems to be committed to the idea that, as with Kant. Um, uh, the understanding will only get you so far. The understanding um, involves the application of uh, the concepts of the understanding or the categories to experience, and experience, you know, is ultimately always partial and limited, and 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 so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but Emerson keeps coming back to this idea that there's something deeper that we can descend to at moments that is, um, to use Heidegger's language, um, uh, disconcealing of the the truth of our situation, right? Um, And that something else, that deeper something that we experience sometimes, I think is something that will later get articulated kind of in the existential phenomenological tradition as mood, right? Um, 
um, um, um, Emerson is really preoccupied with um, the kind of experience where we um, we 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 see the nature of reality not because we've experienced it a lot, but because we feel as if we are um, um, we have a kind of conscious awareness that goes beyond all possible experience. And that comes to us in moments of, say, contemplation of the vegetal realm uh, or, um, or the like. And that seems, again, uh, it's somewhat typical to romanticism to see, to see that idea, but um, Emerson seems a bit ahead of the curve also in anticipating this later idea that we associate with Heidegger of, um, of, 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 of mood as, um, as a kind of, how does Heidegger put it as, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, bringing us into the clearing and all this, all these attempts at poetic, usage the oh, different I mean, you don't want to compare the compare the two too much i mean of course heidegger gets fed up with philosophy and starts um starts intentionally uh delving into um metaphor and poetry whereas this seems to be simply emerson's uh 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 register from the get-go and naturally right the tr not yeah. trying to write systematic philosophy I think he does use language in a, I, I mean, I don't want to compare them too much also, mm. but I think he does use language in a way that it's like useful to think of Heidegger because uh -huh. he's trying to like, he's trying to distance you from the way that you usually yeah. interact with ideas so that they feel fresh to you. And so that they, it doesn't feel like he's talking about a thing that you heard before, even if he's, yeah. even if he is saying a thing you've heard before. Yeah. Different yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, indeed, yeah, that we're coming back to that, that, that point that, you know, style is not just added ornamentation, right? And yeah. that's, of course, that's what my, my analytic philosophy colleagues today think that, you know, why, why would you, why would you need style in what you write if what you're writing is a, a series of, um, truth claims, right? Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't the truth of it, uh, be sufficient, right? If you're, if you're, you're at, if you're adding style on top of that, that must be, they think, because you are uncertain of the truth of what you're saying. So you're trying to decorate it with fancy curly cues and so on. So that nobody will notice it's not true, right? Um, well, there are writers who do that, but they're, they're bad writers. <laughs> but they're bad writers. Yeah, of course, of course. Whereas, uh, you know, Emerson seems to just take for granted, again, from the get-go, that if you are in possession of truth, um, what you need to do, and, you know, in fact, the truth might be a bunch of commonplaces that we've known all along, right? So um, if you, uh, you want to share those commonplaces in a way that other people will find compelling, you better work on your style. That seems to be Emerson's view. Um, I think mm -hmm. that it's something else also. I think that, like, the, the, the content of truth isn't just the kind of idea you can put into words. So if you are mm -hmm. in possession of truth, it's not just that you know a certain thing, it's that you're able to know in a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, and so he's trying to, 
um, like inculcate a reader with the capacity to know in a certain way. And Heiberg yeah. also was doing that. I mean, a lot of, a lot sure. of writers do that. The ones who don't like writers who don't, or philosophers who don't think that style is part of truth. Um, I think that we misunderstand them often, Yeah, you know, like, because you're not going to be, look, language is artifice or whatever. We know this, but mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to be, you can't like, you can't make language a perfect conduit for conveying something that's true because it's, you know, it's imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you are aware of that, then you can use, you can use that limitation um, to your advantage. It's like you can manipulate it or make it do things. It's going to do a thing you don't want to anyway. It's yeah. going to like communicate a thing in a way that like is not the thing inside your head. And mm. since it's going to do that, take the limitation at like, as it is and try and manipulate it through, you know, the curly cues, I guess. Right. And- Right, right, right. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Emerson also in various spots, I, I can't quite recall where, um, is uh, attuned to the fact that um, people with nothing to say often find fancy ways to say it, right? Mm-hmm. And we should be wary of them. And that's, of course, what analytic philosophers are so wary of, you know, the the mystification, right? Um uh, that that often hides behind uh, a, a style, but uh, Emerson's willingness to to um, push his own style to such an extreme. I mean, I think you know uh, I, when I have tried to read Emerson in the past before, I have sometimes thought I'm just too uh, too limited in my learning uh, to appreciate early 19th century style. In right. fact, that in fact that's not what it was at all relative to others in 1841. Right. Emerson is himself uh, uh, kind of an outlier. He's expressing himself in unusual and novel ways, right? Um, and the fact that he does that um, all, while understanding uh, the the danger of being perceived as an obfuscator, I think, is 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 quite quite bold. Yeah. Oh, here's here's an idea that, like, tell me what you think of this. Mm-hmm. I think that it would be a greater internal contradiction or a sign of um, a, a failing if he were to depart from his style, like lapse. If there was a kind of um, you know, like, you know, when you're reading some, a, a great text and you, mm. you, like, you can like feel the contours of it and you feel mm. how powerful the, the thought is in it, just yeah. by the force of the language. And if there, there's like never a place in Emerson where you're running your fingers over the surface of the writing and there's like a part that's weak. It's yeah. all at the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that yeah. it would be a greater contradiction for him to fail at that style than it would be mm-hmm. for him to actually literally say something that contradicts himself, which I think he does in like every essay he contradicts himself. Yeah, right, right, right. You know? Yeah, like yeah. that would be a gr- that would be a, a much more significant failing. And I think that there are other examples that are less extreme of of writers like this. I mean, I actually think that Leon is like this. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, like if he, like he writes at a certain register uh-huh. and 
it commands a kind of gravitas or he's 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 demanding that like a reader approach an idea in an almost religious way like mm-hmm. a certain kind of attention yeah um, and if he was to not do that it would be a betrayal of the enterprise yeah. more than if he just changed his mind about how to understand the idea right you know? right 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 oh that's so interesting yeah yeah um yeah, I mean, for Emerson, it would be like breaking character. Um, yeah. yeah, and it would be like it would be you know at the end. Sorry that I'm doing this, but I promise the last time I'll do this. <laughs> at the end of his life, he had um, it was either Alzheimer's or dementia, mm-hmm. and you know he couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was when it really became you know he says all kinds of things against against erudition um, mm-hmm. and against a certain kind of like studiedness. Um, mm-hmm. and he could do that because his memory was amazing, like, you know, um, immense. He had a very, very powerful memory. He remembered everything that he read. So his mm-hmm. mind was like an encyclopedia and he could say things against, you know, studying history or reading philosophy because mm-hmm. even, even though he was literally saying that out loud, he also had it all at his fingertips. And then at the end of his life, he lost it. Mm-hmm. And so when he got up to speak, he was much shakier than mm-hmm. he had and it was kind of like this colossus which i don't mean like him literally i mean like his thought which is just mm. immense fell away yeah yeah, and, yeah you know that that more than the ideas themselves must have been so disconcerting yeah you know yeah 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 oh that's fascinating i mean but he had a very kind of breakneck uh schedule of uh, his constant lecturing didn't he yeah. he was always um up it's on how the he podium. made money yeah he had no yeah. other yeah 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 um which clearly shapes the 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 character of these essays i gather some of them have their origin in in uh, you know, as written text, but others of them were intended to be spoken before an audience, which, you know, uh, inevitably gives you more of a kind of uh, call and response sort of dynamic uh, in in the words that come out. He had to have known what his audiences uh, were expecting from him to some extent. It shapes it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, he originally, he wanted to be a preacher. He couldn't mm-hmm. because he, he didn't feel he had the right faith. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He didn't feel like his faith was, I guess, Christian enough. I don't want to yeah. say strong enough because obviously his faith was, and whatever the hell it was, <laughs> was quite yeah. strong. Um, yeah. But yeah, these are, these are sermons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like I would say broadly, if we had to find a a church that is close to him, I would say it's Unitarianism. Um, And which is of course, you know, an important uh, part of the American landscape in the 19th century. Um, But, you know, that doesn't mean he, he was himself Unitarian. Um, uh, 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 Oh yeah. Um, Henry Brockmeyer was the um, the character I was, I was trying to think of the name came back to me. Can I read a passage from the Oversoul? Oh, please. Yes, please. Um, yeah. so this is this is one that really struck me because I think, you know, he is um, what you could call a spatiotemporal idealist. He, he clearly thinks that um, that time in particular is a um, uh, uh, 
kind of um, explication, as they say sometimes, of inner experience rather than being part of some Mm -hmm. kind of absolute container in which events unfold. And that is, of course, something that, that puts him very close to the grand tradition of German idealism. But I think it's very interesting the way he adapts this for criticism of um, a kind of infantile strain in uh, in Christian faith. Um, so he's talking about Jesus in uh, and the the less infantile way of understanding what um, the promise of salvation and eternal life actually offer. So he says, uh, men ask concerning the immortality of the soul, the employments of heaven, the state of the sinner, and so forth. They even dream that Jesus has left replies to precisely these interrogatories. Never a moment did that sublime spirit speak in their patois. That's the line I love so much. Um, (laughs) Just calling, um, calling, calling Jesus Christ a sublime spirit um, is, you know, it's certainly uh, praiseful, but it's not at all classical. <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, it, he's drawing more, again, from uh, contemporary philosophical currents than from theology. So just to go on, to truth, justice, love, the attributes of the soul, the idea of immutableness is, assen- uh, Jesus Christ is essentially associated. Jesus, living in these moral sentiments, heedless of sensual fortunes, heeding only the manifestations of these, never made the separation of the idea of duration from the essence of these attributes, nor uttered a syllable concerning the duration of the soul. It was left to his disciples to sever duration from the moral elements, and so on. So, um, you know, uh, you should be a Christian because you'll get to sit around in uh, in the good place um, forever and ever um, after you die is not a good reason to be a Christian. And of course, um, we see this in Kant as well. Anyone who, when Kant criticism, sorry, when Kant criticizes um, Pascal's wager, uh, mm-hmm. You should, you should, you should believe because it's strategically rational to do so, <laughs> right? That's not yeah. a good reason to believe. Um, and I had a friend um, defending that to me recently, and I was like completely blown away. I mean, it was like <laughs> he's like the smartest person I know, and I was just like, uh-huh. how is it possible that you think this? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it it is a fascinating argument, um, and. You know, well, let's well, let's talk about Pascal's wagers some other time. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, the um, yeah. the 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 distinction between um, mm-hmm. what 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 Jesus actually said regarding the salvation of the soul, and then the kind of uh, storybook uh, like or fable like version of that that gets spun out over the centuries, indeed, in part, 
in Augustine. And I'm having a real problem with Augustine right now. Okay. I'm really struggling with him, even though I confuse him with Emerson sometimes. Emerson is my salve after, really? okay. after being wounded by Augustine. And I always read Augustine first. What is and the wounding? Oh, just, I, I mean, well, this is a, I, I mean, basically, look, here's, here's the problem. Um, um, you know, what is, what, what the hell is a Christian supposed to do exactly? Um, some passages in scripture say you should give away all your money right now and go live in the desert and beg for a scrap of bread each day. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then you'll be happy. Um, all right. But if I did that, say sold all my stuff and gave, gave the money away to the poor, um, if I were to do that, I wouldn't be able to be generous to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. I'd be deprived of the means to be generous to people. Um, and that would make me very unhappy, right? Um, and so, and similarly, you know, the the kind of um, worldly connections with people that we're able to cultivate and maintain when we are living in the illusion that this world is reality, that this world is as good as it gets, unlike what the Christians tell us, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. there's a sense in which it's not even clear what we're being asked to do um, by standard Christian doctrine, whether we're being yeah. asked to withdraw ourselves um, and keep our eyes focused on heaven, uh, or whether we're being asked to lead full lives here and now. And the fact that Augustine is struggling with this same question, but never seems to recognize that, um, that, that it might actually be an unclear instruction, that yeah. there might actually be a kind of existential dilemma with no real resolution of the sort that someone like Kierkegaard is so capable of identifying and analyzing right. is just frustrating as hell. It yeah. drives me crazy in Augustine. And so yeah. to um, to come to Emerson, who, you know, obviously, well, from what you're telling me, is not so kind of at peace with himself, is not self-satisfied and so on. Nonetheless, there's some just some kind of, at least in his essays, if not in his actual person, there's some kind of um, uh, mellif... What's the word? No, that's um, right. Mellifluousness? That, is yeah, that what... That, I, is, that just has to do with the style, but it's it's like there's some kind of moral equanimity there. Or there's some kind of, yeah. he holds out to the reader some kind of hope for moral equanimity um, in, where we dwell in the contradictions. Right. right. That's we, right. Yeah. Whereas Augustine is always trying to get you to stop being a hypocrite and come over to the good side. Um, and um, um, it's, yeah, so that that's that's the nature of this of this opposition that I've set up between the two, totally facetious, totally unscholarly. Um, it, it, it only, it only imposes itself on me because I happen to be reading the two at the same time. I'm not, I'm not talking here as a scholar. I'm just talking here as a, as an average doubting, curious schmo. Yeah. That's the vibe you give Justin, the average. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the thing, so I do want to say one thing about Pascal's wager that I think is useful. And I think that it's um, germane to what you were just saying, which is like, if, if I understood what this friend of mine was saying, mm-hmm. I think that it gives you a license to let yourself give, to give yourself over to an idea which allows you a kind of closeness to it without being certain of it or without being um, timid or shy of contradictions, like just allowing yourself to be confident enough in your own faith that you, and also confident enough, like certain enough of your faith and also aware enough of your own like intellectual frailty that yeah like you're you're not gonna get this thing you're not yeah. gonna be able to wrap your arms entirely around this thing there are going to be contradictions because you can't understand this fully yeah right but once you realize that that's a kind of emancipation because it's like okay i know that i'm not going to be able to that like the, the content of the idea will never be completely revealed to me there'll be flashes of light mm-hmm. um, Emerson says that I think Maimonides says that I think Emerson also mm-hmm. said that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's never going to be like all light all of the time. Yeah. Um, and so what you're doing is habituating yourself to a certain kind of like, um, a, a, a certain like motion of faith. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. When you put it like that, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound absurd. It sounds <laughs> like, uh, like yeah. the ultimate the ultimate fake it till you make it argument. I think think there is a seriousness in it because Mm -hmm. you're screwing yourself to your faith. Yeah. It's serious. I mean, it's difficult. Those are, those are really hard muscles to train. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I find it impossible. I mean, I think that that's like, I I think if you think about it that way, it doesn't sound hokey. It actually does sound. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And also, I mean, obviously Pascal is someone who is, sharply aware of the limits of reason right and yeah. and for that reason thinks that the the um the we can supplement what reason isn't furnishing to us by uh practice by action just you know just go through the motions and um and you might start seeing things differently right um yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I, I wanted to mention one other thing about the the preacherliness or about that dimension of Emerson's background. I was really struck by the fact that the Oversoul um, opens with an epigram from Henry Moore. Um, huh. and Henry Moore is not a terribly well known figure um but he's been important to me and a, a lot of the work i've done he was um a cambridge platonist in the 17th century alongside rafe cudworth and and others and um one curious thing about this kind of school of philosophers in the 17th century is that they tended to be um to be pastors as well and their primary work was um, was, was writing sermons, um, and uh, so the the kind of genre uh, of their work is very different from John Locke or Thomas Hobbes and contemporary. Mm-hmm. 
libraries like that. Um, but Henry Moore, and this is why it really struck me, Henry Moore is also very well known for denying uh, the theory of the so-called world soul or anima mundi um, uh, that had that was... Uh, widely talked about in the 17th century that was associated with ancient Stoicism. Indeed, the Stoics did, did believe in a world soul and that carried with it also the very difficult um, con or kind of corollary uh, that um, if the world has a soul, then um, that must mean that the world itself is a kind of animal or some kind of mm. uh, well-structured, ordered whole analogous to an organism, right? Yeah. And that seemed to be something that um, was too heretical to take seriously. And Henry Moore was very vociferous in his rejection of it. He mm. said, you know, he said at one point, you know, if there were only one soul in the world, then every time you you smack your dog, um, you yourself will feel the smart of it, he says, um, because, you know, uh, everything would be uh, part of the same body if there's if there's a single soul for the whole world. Um, and then, of course, uh, in various um, early modern monistic systems, and we can think about Spinoza here, obviously, yeah. um, we are indeed moving towards a theory according to which um, you have one uh, single uh, world uh, that is the only substance you can talk about, and it also has its correlate in thought, which is to say some kind of soul-body yeah. distinction, but for the whole world, right? That's yeah. uh, one way of understanding Spinozistic monism. Um, so then, uh, uh, obviously, Emerson is not going along with Henry Moore on this, but yeah. also, and this is why I'm, I'm talking about all of this and getting so deep in the, in the, in the weeds here, because it's pretty clear that the oversoul, what Emerson means by this, is not, um, is not an anima mundi, right? Uh, it's not a single principle that structures the world. It is rather something special, I think, to human beings, um, so to speak, to Dasein, right? It's, it's something that, that we share in um, and that makes us what we are and that we can only access in, in rare moments or something. But it definitely doesn't constrain um, yeah. or unify, say, uh, everything in the external world in, in, in any way. Um, and so where does this come from? We know that, um, that there's a kind of... Um, demotic uh, version of Vedanta philosophy that Emerson is, is getting interested in at the time, largely, I think, thanks to um, recent uh, Latin and French translations of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, yeah. uh -huh. uh, and uh, I, I think this could just be a kind of curious um, kind of... Uh, adaptation of Vedanta philosophy um, for uh, 
his own purposes, but it's confusing when we see him start off with this epigram from Henry Moore. Anyhow, that's just my effort to kind of place the basic thesis in the context of the history of philosophy in a kind of uh, cleaned up way. <laughs> Justin, to to end the podcast, do you want to just read the do you want to just read the epigraph? Oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, so Henry Moore writes, "But souls that of his own good life partake, he loves as his own self." Dear as his eye, they are to him, he ne- he ne- he'll never them forsake. When they shall die, then God himself shall die. They live, they live in blessed eternity. <laughs> you know, until recently when I saw uh, um, English poetry like that, I would, I would pronounce the, the, the die and the eternity. Yeah. So that, um, <laughs> die, they live, they live in blessed eternity. Eternity. Right. <laughs> Apparently, you're not supposed to do that, though. <laughs> it kind of shatters the effect. Yeah. Um, I always, I always thought you were you were given literally poetic license to change the pronunciation of words in those cases, but no. That's sad. Alas, who told you no? Uh, I, I checked. There's um. Let's see. Um. Uh, you know the Auden's um, eloge to um, Yeats, uh, beautiful. Um, how does it go? It, it's like um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Earth, Earth receive an honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let this Irish vessel lie. Um, yep. Depleted of its poetry, oh, <laughs> no. like that. Um, and so I went and I listened to Auden himself reciting it, and he oh. says poetry. Well, I knew it. That's a definitive source. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was so great, Justin. Thank you so oh, much. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's always fun to talk to you. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, if you are a Liberty subscriber, then you will be able to read the many essays that Justin has and will write for us. Uh, if you are not a Liberty subscriber, then head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition.